0: Hi, and welcome to the Magical History Tour. I'm your tour guide, Hollis, and today we'll be taking a tour of the new federal government headed by George Washington. Setting up a new government is pretty exciting stuff, so let's get our tour started. In the spring of 1789, the new federal government took power. This, of course, happened after the first federal elections, and the temporary capital was New York City. George Washington was elected unanimously in the Electoral College, and his inauguration took place on April 30, 1789. Now, these first years of the new government were very important in shaping the structure of American politics and government for years to come. Though he dressed very simply at his inauguration and said that he was content with a plain Republican title, Washington could be counted as a nationalist, one of the elite. He was very quiet and reserved. He was really not a man of the people, as other presidents would be called later. He rode around town in a pretty grand carriage pulled by six horses, sort of like British royalty. He will personally deliver his addresses to Congress and receive an official reply from both houses. Those were customs that will be continued by John Adams, who will be the second president, but some of those things will be ended by Jefferson, who thought that they were too much like royalty. Still, Washington worked very hard to follow the Constitution to the letter. He even refused to use the veto power he was given, except when he thought the Congress had acted unconstitutionally. That's the only time he felt he could use that. As the government is officially in power, Congress will move quickly to establish departments to run the executive affairs of state. Washington will appoint Thomas Jefferson as his secretary of state and Alexander Hamilton to run the treasury. Henry Knox will be the head of the War Department and Edmund Randolph will run the Justice Department as the very first attorney general. So Washington is a president who consults others regularly. He spoke with these men frequently during his first term to discuss matters of policy. And this group will eventually become known as the cabinet. That's an institution that has survived to this day, despite the fact that there was never actually any constitutional authority given to them or any legislation that enabled him to create the cabinet. He just set up a group of people that he could come to when he needed things and that becomes a cabinet. But Washington was very, very powerful and he had a very commanding presence he still understood the importance of national unity. The people that he chose were people from all over and they had different viewpoints and that's kind of what he wanted. His style of leadership, including these consultations and appointments, shows how important he felt it was to achieve a balance of conflicting political perspectives and sectional interests. So we see that today, the cabinet tends to be made up of people from the same party as the president. But back then, he will rightly look for a balance of differing views with whom to consult. He wanted to have different opinions so that he could make the best decisions. So now we get more people who will just tell you what you want to hear, whereas then he was like, tell me what I don't want to hear. Tell me why I need to do this or not do this and argue about it and talk about it. The Judiciary Act of 1789 was probably the most important piece of legislation to emerge from the first session of Congress. This empowers Congress to determine the number of justices on the Supreme Court. It also creates a system of federal courts. Now, nationalists wanted a really strong federal legal system that would provide kind of a uniform code of justice throughout the country. However, localists in Congress were able to preserve local community autonomy. So, for example, if you stole a candy bar from a store and you got in trouble, and they turned you in, in a nationalist perspective, you would go to a federal court. (laughs) In a localist perspective, you would go to your local court, and then if you wanted to appeal that ruling, you could go to the next level court, up through eventually getting to a federal court, possibly. But you're not going to, for some minor thing, you're not going to go to a federal court. So this act is going to give federal courts limited original jurisdiction. It's so restricted them mostly to appeals from state courts. But this act also, also establishes the principle of federal judicial review of state legislation. Federal judicial review of state legislation means that if a state legislature comes up with some laws, they can be reviewed by a federal court to determine if they're constitutional or not. Last time we talked about the economic affairs, and they're not so good when the new government comes to power. So Congress will pass the Tariff of 1789, which was actually a compromise between people who wanted really high protective tariffs and people who wanted lower tariffs or moderate tariffs. A tariff is a small tax on foreign products, and if you want a high tariff, that means people have to pay more, and it encourages people to buy local goods, American-made goods. And a smaller tariff would be just like, well, we need a little bit of revenue coming in. So the moderate tariff is the idea that it would simply produce an income for the federal government. But taxes on imported goods are going to be the main way that the federal government obtains revenue until the 20th century, because they're going to hesitate to tax property or incomes too much because of all that we went through with the Revolutionary War and and Britain. The Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, will unveil a very controversial plan in 1790. He proposed that the federal government take on the debts that were accumulated by all of the states in the last 15 years, as well as redeem the national debt by agreeing to a new issue of interest-bearing bonds. Now, that would help pay off the foreign debt and the domestic debt. So Congress liked part of Hamilton's plan. At the time, the nation's outstanding debt was around $54 million. That was made up of the debt from the war, including foreign creditors, as well as loan certificates the government had issued its own citizens and soldiers. And they said, yes, we do need to definitely pay off the foreign creditors as soon as we can, because we don't want to look like we're a country that's not paying its debt. So they decide to endorse the part of the plan to pay off the $11 million that they owed foreign creditors. But they did not like the idea of funding the domestic debt, paying off our own debt, which is money we owe ourselves, which was about $27 million. And they really didn't like the idea of assuming the debts of the individual states, which added up to about another $25 million. Now, Hamilton wanted to do it because he kind of hoped that this would inspire confidence of domestic and foreign investors in the public credit of the new nation. Looking at the domestic debt, the currency had been almost worthless. So a lot of people had started selling their paper money really cheaply to speculators. Speculators were people who kind of like today would play the stock market and do really questionable deals to hopefully get a lot of money. Speculators at that time bought people's paper money really cheap because the paper money at that time wasn't worth anything. And they were hoping that the government would issue a new currency and that they would say, okay, you can turn in this old currency at the face value. And if that's the case, then they would make a lot of money because maybe they paid a nickel for a dollar bill. And then if they went and turned it into the government, the government would give them a full dollar for it. So that's how they wanted to make money. And part of Hamilton's plan was to pay those off at face value, which is to say the government would say, you come and turn in your old currency and we'll give you dollar for dollar on it. That would give those speculators some really big profits. And Madison didn't think that was fair. So the people had kind of been forced to sell their notes so cheaply because they needed the money. So that's part of the reason they didn't like his plan. The other problem was in taking over the state debts because some of those states that owed money to other countries had already taken steps to liquidate their debt. They had paid some of it off while others had ignored it and just let theirs go unpaid. And so some felt that taking the state debt over would be rewarding those states that had done nothing nothing to fix their economies and you know some of the states who had like say for example and I'm making up who had debt or not because I'm not sure what states it was but say Virginia had five million dollars of debt and South Carolina had five million dollars of debt and say Virginia had paid off two million dollars and South Carolina hadn't paid off any. Well in this case if we took over all the state debt Virginia would probably say something like hey that's not fair are you going to pay me back the money I've already paid off because now you're just taking over all their debt and we actually work to pay some of ours. So, a lot of people did not feel like it was very fair. So, Congress was deadlocked on all these issues for like 6 months until finally they'll find a compromise, which I'll talk about in just a minute. Now, a different issue was with the location of the new national capital. People in the north wanted it to be in Philadelphia, but people in the south wanted it on the Potomac River. Finally, Madison, Hamilton, and Jefferson get together and have a plan. Madison will agree to get enough southern votes To pass Hamilton's debt assumption plan, if northern congressmen would agree to the location of the new capital being on the boundary of Virginia and Maryland on the Potomac. So, finally, in July of 1790, Congress will pass legislation that moved the temporary capital from New York City to Philadelphia until the expected completion of the federal city in the District of Columbia in 1800. Then, and it will be located on the Potomac, Washington, D.C. Two weeks later, Hamilton's credit program will be adopted. It's called the Compromise of 1790. So if you've ever seen Hamilton or listened to the musical, that song, The Room Where It Happened, was about this deal that they made under the table to pass Hamilton's financial plan along with the location of the capital. Now the second part of Hamilton's fiscal program was the establishment of a Bank of the United States. It would be a public corporation funded by private capital. It would serve as the depository of government funds and be the fiscal agent of the treasury. Now Congress will very narrowly approve the bank, but The fact that James Madison opposed the bank concerned Washington because he has to approve it finally. He has to sign the legislation. So he takes up the question with his cabinet, and it's here that we're going to see the classic interpretations of constitutional authority. Jefferson will take what we call a strict constructionist position. He argued that the powers of the federal government had to be limited to those specifically stated in the Constitution. So his idea is if it doesn't in the Constitution say specifically that the federal government can do it, they can't do it. That's strict construction. Hamilton is a loose constructionist, and that argument reasoned that the Constitution carried implied powers to use, and I quote, whatever means were necessary and proper to carry out its enumerated or listed powers. Say, for example, the Commerce Clause says that federal government can regulate trade between and among the states. Okay, so we can regulate trade. Well, if we need a bank to regulate that trade, it's implied, in the power that says we can regulate trade, that we can do whatever it takes to regulate trade. So it doesn't specifically say we can have a bank, but Hamilton would say, well it's implied in the Commerce Clause, that we can have a bank if we need one. Washington was persuaded by Hamilton's loose construction argument. He signed the bill and the bank will go into operation in 1791. Much to Jefferson's dismay, he did not like the bank. But overall, Hamilton's fiscal policies will dramatically restore the financial health of the United States. Now, that little bit of drama will open us to talk about the rest of the drama in the cabinet during this time. And there was a lot of drama in the cabinet during this time. For one thing, Jefferson and Hamilton pretty much despised each other. Jefferson represented the southern agrarians, and Hamilton represented the northern capitalists, for one thing. But just generally, they didn't get along. Jefferson thought Hamilton felt himself too important, and Jefferson thought he was kind of George Washington's right-hand man, an heir apparent. So Hamilton had nobody. acting like the Prime Minister. Basically, Jefferson's side thought that the other was trying to overturn state governments and institute a monarchy, while Hamilton's side thought that the other's side, Jefferson's side, was trying to overturn the national government and elevate the states to power. And Hamilton thought that as Secretary of Treasury, he was George Washington's right-hand man. The feud will get even worse when it came to foreign policy. The big event in the 1790s was, of course, the French Revolution, which had begun in 1789 after they helped us with our revolution. It was widely applauded by Americans initially and people will draw parallels between the Americans and the French revolutions. However, when in 1793 the reign of terror began in France and hundreds of aristocrats died upon the guillotine, conservative Americans began to voice a dissenting opinion. American opinion will be more firmly divided when King Louis XVI was executed and revolutionary France and monarch Britain began a war in that same year. The main question was, does the Franco-American alliance of 1778 require that America support France in its war with Britain? Now the cabinet, when they discussed it, fully agreed that the Americans should be neutral. Neutral countries were gaining trade benefits because France and Britain are fighting each other on the seas, so America stood to make a significant profit by remaining neutral. We could take goods across the ocean and not get shot at and stuff like that. Jefferson thought it was very unlikely that the French would actually ask America to honor the treaty because the treaty was really set up so that France would help us during our revolution. So Jefferson said, no, we should just wait and see. Don't announce neutrality. Hamilton, though, argued that it was very dangerous for America to involve herself in the mess and that Washington should immediately and publicly declare the treaty temporarily suspended. So Hamilton and the nationalists believe in the necessity of accommodating Britain. Britain is still our most important trading partner despite having had a war recently. They are still also the world's greatest naval power, by the way. Of course, Jefferson, Madison, and the Democrats looked for more international independence and therefore closer relations with Britain's traditional rivals, France. They kind of felt like, "Hey, we got out from under Britain. We are no longer her colony, so we need to separate ourselves from her." So this is an argument within the cabinet. The French ambassador Edmond Genet arrived in early 1793, and the debates about America's stand grew even more heated. Are we going to be neutral? Are we? going to support the British or the French. Genet was very popular with the people. They called him Citizen Genet, and he gets a lot of support from those people who still harbor a lot of ill will towards the British. And of course, Jefferson is a big Francophile, so Washington knew that he had to do something when Genet got there. So on April 22nd, 1793, he will issue a proclamation of neutrality. He said, we will be friendly, we will still trade with both sides, but we are neutral. Of course, this very much upsets Jefferson. Hamilton and his supporters were really happy. Hey, he picked our side again. But Jefferson and his supporters were far from it. And a lot of the Jeffersonians will organize societies that sympathize with the French. And they would use these societies as a way to organize political opposition to the Washington administration. And Washington, of course, gets very upset about this. He denounced these societies as attempts to destroy the fabric of government. Now, at this point, Genet looks around and he thinks he has the upper hand. And he demanded that Washington call a special session of Congress, he like publicly, said Washington you should call a special session of Congress and debate neutrality because obviously not everybody agrees and that gets him into trouble because Jefferson who had actually been a good friend of the ambassadors will denounce him as hot-headed and he said that he'd been indecent towards the president because Jefferson is like yeah I don't like what Washington did but you can't talk about our president like that and everyone else felt that way too. He'll lose most of his other supporters as well when he criticizes Washington because while they might not like what Washington does every time they would never criticize him in that way but because of this Jefferson will resign from the cabinet quite soon after that and Genet's party will soon fall out of power back in France but he'll remain in the United States because he feared the guillotine but Genet is very important because he furthered that division of the Federalist coalition into two factions the cabinet basically goes into two sections you have one group of people that identify with Washington and Hamilton and conservative principles and the other identifying with Jefferson and Madison and democracy and the French Revolution. So that's going to see the very beginnings of what will later become the political parties. Now on top of the Native American problems that we were having in the West, you have Spain and Britain still out there kind of getting on our nerves. Spain closed the Mississippi River to American shipping so farmers couldn't market their crops through the port at New Orleans. They were also promoting immigration by encouraging their colonists to move to Louisiana And Florida, which were places closer to our border, in an attempt to create a barrier to American settlement. They really didn't do very well with immigration. Uh, They didn't get that many people moved there, but they did succeed in creating a barrier of pro Spanish Native American nations in the lower Mississippi Valley. They also constructed two new Mississippi River forts at sites that will later become Vicksburg and Memphis. So the Spanish are working against us there. North of the Ohio River, the situation is very similar. Thousands of loyalists had fled the new American states and settled in this area, and they were understandably hostile to the new republic. The British Parliament will pass the Canada Act in 1791, and that creates the province of Upper Canada, which is Ontario, and it gave the loyalists limited self-government. And to protect this province, the British troops remained at several forts that were in American territory. If you recall, we had said at the end of the revolution, you've got to get out, and they agreed. We said, Again, recently, and they haven't. So, they were actually supplying Native Americans with arms and ammunition to attack American settlers, and they were hoping to create a buffer to American expansion as well. So with all of these problems in the West, Washington is facing a huge crisis in his presidency in 1794. Western communities were throwing around words like rebellion and secession because they didn't feel like the government was protecting them from the native tribes that kept attacking. To top it all off, Hamilton put a federal excise tax on whiskey, and that will hit the backcountry farmers really hard. So the whiskey rebellion will break out in the summer of 1794. Now, this all comes around about the same time as British and Spanish agents were secretly trying to bribe American settlers to leave the Union and join Canada or go to Florida. And at the same time, Britain is seizing vessels that were trading with the French in the West Indies, American vessels, and they were confiscating their cargo and threatening a lot of merchants with ruin. So it seems like we're being attacked from all sides during this time. But to tell you a little bit about the Whiskey Rebellion, whiskey was a cash crop. West could not ship their grain on the Mississippi River, though, because the Spanish had closed it to traffic and would shoot at them. Now, the cost of transporting grain over the Appalachians was prohibitive. A pack horse could carry about four bushels of grain, but that's four bushels minus what the horse ate on the road, and you get it all there, and it doesn't sell enough to pay for the journey. However, a horse could carry the equivalent of 24 bushels of grain if it had been converted into liquor. Now, a gallon of whiskey could actually sell for $25, cents or more. And so that would provide a small profit of about seven cents on the gallon for the farmers. Hamilton's excise tax of 1791 was seven cents on the gallon, which basically wiped that profit out. So Western farmers had no way to get their crops for sale anywhere and make any money. So similar to Shays' Rebellion in 1786, the Western Pennsylvania farmers will rough up tax collectors and riot in river towns. Now, Washington and Hamilton, who had really been alarmed by the Shay'site disorder back in 1786, recognized an opportunity to demonstrate the weakness of the old Confederation government and the authority of the new government. So the president himself will set out at the head of 15,000 troops to suppress the rebellion. Once the rebels scattered, he will leave the expedition and leave Hamilton in charge. Hamilton will push on. He'll arrest a few men who were tried, convicted of treason and sentenced to death. And then Washington will come in pardoned them, showing his contempt for the rebels and the fact that he did not thirst for blood. Basically, though, they had to ask where the rebellion was because it wasn't really big enough for them to find it. In one sense, the suppression of the Whiskey Rebellion was a farce. An army as large as the one that defeated the British was organized to crush a rebellion that its commander couldn't even find. But the political significance of the Whiskey Rebellion and its suppression was profound. By taking swift military action, the government made it clear that it wouldn't tolerate activities that violated national laws. Additionally, it showed the national government's right to enforce order in a state with troops raised in other states. But the Westerners will resent this enough to ensure that when political parties do fully emerge, the people of the frontier would not be voting for the Federalists. Another victory will further underline the supremacy of the national government when the Native American Confederacy is crushed at the Battle of Fallen Timbers in August of 1794, and that victory led to the Treaty of Greenville in 1795, and that's where leaders of 12 different Indian nations will cede huge territory, most of Ohio, a lot of Indiana, and several other places, to the United States. Now, the position of the U.S. government in the West has been strengthened, so the British are thinking they might just settle their issue with the United States so they could concentrate on defeating France. John Jay will broker the treaty and so it'll be called Jay's Treaty and its main goals were to bring an end to British interference with American trade ships. Remember I said that they were stopping our ships and confiscating our cargo and stuff like that. Jay's Treaty was supposed to fix a lot of problems, some of which dated back to the end of the revolution. So under the treaty, Britain will agree to turn over forts that were being used to supply arms to Native Americans who were then using those against settlers who were trying to infringe on their lands, most of those forts were located in what is today the Michigan area. The British, like I said, had agreed to withdraw troops from the United States in the treaty that ended the revolution, but they hadn't done so. So this treaty, Jay's treaty, would provide for British withdrawal from American soil by 1796. The treaty also said that the United States would not carry goods on their trade ships between France and the colonies, and in exchange for that, we'll get a few minor concessions from the British to limit Their interference with American trade ships. So basically, we're not going to trade with France as much. That made Britain happy. This treaty will also give most favored nation status to both countries. Jay's treaty will represent a solid gain for the young republic. We were really too young to wage war, so it's very good that we could work out a friendly treaty with Britain. Now, when news of the treaty leaked, however, Jeffersonian Republicans were very upset at the accommodation of Britain at France's expense. France also was none too happy about it because we said we wouldn't carry goods to and from their country. So they began an undeclared war with us, which we'll see more of on the next tour. Southerners were upset that no mention had been made of compensation for those slaves who had run away to the British side during the revolution. So protests and demonstrations will rage across the country over Jay's treaty. John Jay joked that he could see his way home at midnight from the light of the bonfires that were burning him in effigy. But Hamilton's supporters will ratify the agreement in June of 1795. Opposing members of the House argued that they wanted to see all the diplomatic correspondence regarding Jay's treaty. Washington refused this. That establishes the precedent of executive privilege in matters of state. So the whole deadlock will continue until late in the year. News will arrive that the Spanish wanted to negotiate and reconcile with America. Now the Spanish had suffered a defeat by the French and they were worried about losing their American empire. So American envoy, Thomas Pinckney will negotiate a treaty in which Spain agreed to a boundary with the United States on the 31st parallel, which kind of fixes all of the problems that we had with them regarding questionable land. We both signed individual treaties with Britain at the end of the revolution, and we both had land that we claimed that was the same. So this will take care of that. It will also open the Mississippi to American shipping. Under the agreement worked out, which was called the Treaty of San Lorenzo, which we also call Pinckney's Treaty, the Spanish gave up trying to rule this area of land that was disputed between the United States and Spain. So thousands of square miles of new territory were added. Parts of Mississippi and Alabama, basically. In addition, the the treaty will prevent Spanish military forces from interfering with American ships on the Mississippi River, and it will allow American products and products destined for the American West to be loaded and unloaded in New Orleans without being taxed. Both of which fix the problem that the Whiskey Rebellion had highlighted. So this treaty is going to make the Jeffersonian Republicans very happy. However, they were encouraged to vote for Jay's treaty in order for Pinckney's treaty to get approved. So in that way, everyone won. You vote for ours, we'll vote for yours. These two treaties establish American sovereignty over the lands west of the Appalachian Mountains, but the whole ordeal will cause Washington to refuse a third term in office. Thanks for taking the tour. Next week, we'll focus on Washington's farewell address, the crazy elections of 1796 and 1800, the Adams presidency, and the rise of political parties. There's a lot of fun stuff in next week's tour, so be sure to tune in, listen, subscribe, rate, and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. And if you like the tour, invite a friend along. See you next week.